This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hey, what's going on? It's Doug here. And before I send it to the episode, I want to let you know what this episode is all about. This is a live panel. Carl and I recorded this at Camp Fi Rocky Mountain week two, which we enjoyed very much. We did this last year and we had a couple guests help us out. We thought it worked out well, so we decided to uh, bring uh, better and smarter people to help us out again. So we have Mindy Jensen, who is the uh, host over at Bigger Pockets Money. Um, a lot of people uh, know her already, and she sat with us. She helped us out quite a bit. And we also have Rachel Richards. You know her from Money Honey Rachel. And she's big on Instagram and uh, TikTok and many other places. She's been on a ton of other podcasts. And it was great to have Rachel and Mindy help us out. They actually answered most of the questions, which was good. And the questions came in from the other attendees at Camp Fi. So uh, for a few days, we were uh, asking people to fill out questions. We're we're going to record a live podcast and all that stuff. So they submitted questions. Some are uh, slightly off topic from, uh, quote, financial independence. But we told them to just put whatever questions they wanted in there. So thanks, everyone who submitted questions. Thanks to all the people in the live audience for tolerating our shenanigans and stuff like that. And, of course, thanks to Mindy and Rachel for sitting in and helping us out. So I think that covers everything. A quick plug, I mean, I think we've talked about Camp Fi and how much we enjoy those uh, weekends and th the people are amazing. The community aspect is fantastic. You get to hang out and, and go on hikes and just spend time with uh, people that kind of get you and understand the things that you're interested in. And while we have an interest in personal finance and financial independence, most of the conversations are outside that. So many of us are kind of on the same page financially, but it's a good filtering mechanism and you end up just having conversations about whatever else you're interested in, whether it's, um, you know, outdoor activities or a certain cuisine or drinking beer or doing puzzles or whatever. There's a lot of common ground and, and there's plenty of people to go hang out with. So anyway, Thanks a lot. I'm going to send it over to the episode and uh, we'll catch you. Uh, we'll catch you on the other side there. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I'm Carl Jensen with my co-host. Hey, I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have two very special guests today. One is someone close to me in more ways than one. Tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Mindy Jensen. I am your wife, or should I say you are my husband, and I am the host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. And then we have Rachel Richards, and I am a best-selling author and real estate investor. And thank you for having me. Okay, let's do something semi-useful. And there goes the slide. Okay, we're done with this part. Uh, what we are going to do now is answer questions from the audience. And Mindy 
is actually going to ask the question and then redirect it to one of us. So why don't you start with the first question? And actually, can I interrupt? So we are doing a podcast and the podcast listeners don't know what's going on. We're at Camp Fine. We're recording this live. Very important context for the questions that are about to come. So there's a live audience here. So now. Today's episode is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Also, before we get started, I want to give a shout out to JT, who is doing some sort of computery thing for us. But also, more importantly, he took it upon himself to have a large quantity of adult beverages available for the panelists. So the the quality of the show is definitely going to go down as we go over. Or up. <laughs> no, it's down. <laughs> so wait, it was really good because JT did all the tech work, but now it's going to it's gonna be bad because he's applying us with alcohol. No, the tech work's great. Yeah. It's not his fault that we are awful as we get drunker. Okay. <laughs> Question number one. What real estate strategy would you recommend to someone just getting started? And this is directed at Rachel. That's a great question. Um, I would say for someone just getting started, I would recommend house hacking because a lot of the times for those getting started, money is an obstacle and house hacking reduces that obstacle. When you are trying to find an investment property, if you're not going to live there, you need to have a 20 to 25% down payment. But with house hacking, and I know that a lot of you already heard this from my presentation today, so I apologize for the redundancy. Um, with house hacking, when you live in the house as a primary residence, you can pay 0% down with a VA loan, 3.5% down with an FHA loan, or 5 or 10% down with a conventional loan. So it gets rid of that, and it helps you learn a lot because you're living in the house. You can live in it for a year, then rent it out, or you can buy a duplex and a triplex, live in one unit, and rent out the others. Does anybody else have anything to comment? No comment. Yeah, great answer. Yeah, I think house hacking is a really great way to get started. Uh, Carl, we're going to go with a, another serious question before we get into some of the um, listener questions. Can you share some tips on finding healthcare coverage after FI, especially with pre-existing conditions? How did I get this question? I don't know why I didn't write your name on here. I, I don't think I'm quite qualified to answer this, but one thing I would look at is some of the health sharing organizations. Uh, uh, they've diversified. What is the one? We have a mutual friend named Bill. He's associated with one that's based out of Texas. Does anyone know the name of this? Um, Sentara? Yeah, it's something like that. Sentara, Solera. Solera's our big. Sentara? Yeah, and the health sharing organizations are a little bit tricky in that sometimes they will not cover an existing condition for a period of time. For example, I think with his, if you're pregnant, uh, they will not cover you. You have to wait. There's a waiting period. But, man, medical insurance is a very complicated topic. Does anyone have – I do like the health sharing organizations because uh, we interviewed Bill on a, on a prior pad, podcast. and They're very small, so they're very efficient. You can talk directly to the people who run it. You don't have all the layers of bureaucracy, so I think they're a lot more efficient than normal health care. And one example Bill gave us is – there was someone who needed some kind of procedure, and this person said, hey, I can get this procedure done in the U.S. for X amount, or I could go to Costa Rica and have it done for like a third of the cost. So this health sharing organization said, okay, that's fine. We'll pay you since you saved us money. We're going to pay you to fly down there, and we'll pay for your lodging. So I think those are going to 
perhaps grow as time goes on. But does anyone else have a better answer than me? No. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I haven't had to deal with it either, but it's definitely one of the things that makes us a little nervous. Uh, my wife still works full time, so we get her benefits, but that's some big problem we're going to have to solve. Yeah. I think geographic arbitrage is a way a lot of FI people solve this if they need a procedure. You can go to another country, and even if you're paying full price, it's still going to be way cheaper than it would have in America. If you really get into that black swan situation where you have some terrible diagnosis at a young age. This is one of the biggest questions that I get from uh, people that I talk to in the space. And, and there's the, unfortunately, the, the short answer is there's no good answer for this question. And until you hit Medicare age, you're just kind of figuring it out as you go. So if you have a chronic condition, perhaps you want to have a part-time job with a company that gives medical insurance to their part-timers. If you don't have a chronic condition, you can kind of gamble with coverage. You can get an uh, Affordable Care Act plan, the like the really basic plan that covers basically a catastrophic illness like a, you know, appendicitis or something where you can't really plan for it. But for the most part, United States healthcare is crap. And post-fi options are terrible. So... Sorry to bring that down. <laughs> uh, okay, this one is for Doug. These are listener questions. Please just note these are these are all you and listener questions. Doug, who farted? Uh, I don't know. That's an existential kind of question, and I I think you know we all fart. <laughs> so, Carl. Did one of my kids put that on the box? Claire, was that you? <laughs> She's laughing. laughing. I think it was her. It was her. <laughs> Way to go. I'm proud of you. It's awesome. <laughs> okay, Carl, did you specifically request asparagus for lunch? <laughs> so for people who, don't, who do not know the context of this question, I'm not sure how this ever came up in the podcast. I'll throw myself under the bus, the tractor, farms. And somehow the topic of asparagus, and more specifically asparagus pee and the smell of it, came up on the podcast. And it's been a recurring theme. And we were talking about this earlier today, Doug. I think half the people who listen uh, get pretty angry and tell us to knock it off, stop acting like 12-year-olds. But the other half love it. So I, I, <laughs> right? do we continue on or do we cut it out? I don't know. I think we got to leave it in. And I mean, today we we actually didn't know. We didn't request that asparagus be served, but we were thrilled when we saw it out there. <laughs> and just a quick poll, uh, who used, or who ate asparagus and then used the restroom afterwards? And then did, did it smell a little funny? Bathrooms were crazy today. I mean, it, it was not good in there. But yeah, just a uh, poll of the group if you want to share. Uh, how does your pee smell? You don't not, have to answer. Not good. Okay. Not good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, mine's not good either. <laughs> it, it was intense. I warned Minnie to go into the ba about going into the bathroom, and she assumed that it was a, a different... Really? Is this what you talk about on your show? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, it is. This is... Uh... And Minnie's like, I'm not going in there. I'm like, no, no, it's just asparagus. And I don't know what happened after that. I think I left. <clears throat> How about you? Did you have the asparagus? I did not. I don't particularly care for asparagus. And just, we weren't able to get it up on the slide, but there's actually a picture of Carl and I at the urinals earlier today, <laughs> li living this moment. So, you know, Who, you podcast whose together. Whose smelled worse? 
really, Rachel? (laughs) 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 Note to y'all, do not touch Doug's phone. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Uh, do, Do you have tips on going on the journey with fire with young kids? And this is directed at me, probably because at some point I had young kids. Now they're 12 and 15, so they're not young anymore. Um, drink heavily. No. Uh, the <laughs> tips for going on the journey is to enjoy the journey. You are not going to start your financial independence journey today and be done tomorrow. You're not going to be done next week unless you're like already there and then you don't need these tips. But you can go whole hog and really, really hard on this journey. And it's not an enjoyable way to do it. We didn't discover coast fi or slow fi until – well, I just discovered it last week when I interviewed Jess from the Pioneers on my show. And it's the idea that you put away enough money now so that it will grow to retirement. And then you don't have to save anything else, which means you're not hustling and, and pushing and, and just this all out burning desire to get to five right away. Um, you're still going to get there eventually, but you wrote an article, Carl, called The Death March to Fi, and it is a really good, kind of sad article about how we did just that. We just pushed, 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 and he was working like 80 hours a week, and it wasn't an enjoyable time. And we got to Fi, and then you're like, well, it doesn't solve your life. It doesn't change your your life. It doesn't solve any of your problems. You still have all of those things, and now you just have money, but you can't really stop because some of us don't know how to stop. Looking directly at you. Um, It's been, I would say it's five years since our, uh, since you quit. And you're just starting to figure out that you don't have to work a thousand hours a week. Yeah. Doug's laziness is uh, rubbing off on me. And that was a compliment. (laughs) Yeah. Good. But but the other thing you should do with kids is talk about these concepts as often as possible. I'm looking at my daughter there. Claire, do you know what an index fund is? You, You could just shake your head like yes or no. Do you know what the 4% rule is? Okay, you do. This is awesome. I didn't know about any of this stuff until I was like 40 and old. Um, should you buy a Honda a Element or a Tesla? <laughs> she said Tesla. <laughs> she said Tesla. That is the wrong answer. <laughs> What's the right answer? We're Tesla shareholders, remember? But with gas prices so high, I don't she know. has a point. Yeah, that payback period would be severe, and I'm giving her crap right now because she, for whatever reason, she has decided the Honda Element is the worst vehicle. Like, she'd be less embarrassed if I dropped her off at school, like, riding a blue whale like the Honda Element is the peak of school embarrassment. Oh, okay. So you like the blue whale. We'll try to hook it up. Uh, yeah, so to wrap it up, my... My advice is to enjoy the journey and, yes, educate your kids. Although today it was really lovely. After Rachel's talk, my 15-year-old came up and said, this is so great, Mom. I really liked her talk. I'm like, I have been preaching this to you (laughs) your whole life. (laughs) You're like, I don't care. I don't care. But Rachel's really great, Mom. (laughs) Having an impact on Claire is my greatest achievement. So thank you. (laughs) Okay, something serious. Our dream is to own large multifamily slash apartment complexes. How do you transition from being a small mom-and-pop landlord 
to finally owning big apartment complexes. And this is aimed at Rachel. Uh, this is something I did pretty quickly. So I bought a duplex. And then the next building I bought was a 10 to 12 unit building. So I transitioned immediately. It was definitely um, something that I, it was a big bite. What's the phrase? I bought, I bit, bit off more, bit than, off you more than I, no, it was, it was the appropriate amount that I could chew at the time actually. Um, <laughs> but it, I had to learn a lot. So when you scale that quickly, you do have to learn a lot. And one of the things I had to learn was a transition in mindset. Because when you go from being so frugal and being a small mom and pop landlord, you're used to doing things like wanting to go down and fix stuff yourself. Because you're in that frugal mindset starting out. You don't have a lot of money. Instead of hiring stuff out to contractors, I would often go down and fix stuff myself with my husband. We would look up on YouTube how to fix the faucet, and then we'd be in the bathroom trying to figure out what the heck we were doing. But then when you scale and all of a sudden you have... 20 tenants or 26 tenants or 32 tenants, you can't go do all that stuff on your own because then you're holding yourself back because then it becomes a time problem. And during this period of time, we were working full time. So you really have to learn how to delegate. And if you don't do that at the right time, you're really going to suffer and struggle. So part of the thing with scaling quickly and building up to multifamily is learning how to outsource and delegate and have teams into place. So that's that's probably my biggest piece of advice. Does anybody have anything to add? Okay. Someone wants to talk about side hustles and self-promotion. And we've got Rachel on here, but isn't Doug a bit of a expert in that too? Yes. Okay. We don't well, have much context on this one, so can I don't. You make so up? can you just yeah. Hey, Doug, <laughs> tell me about side hustles and self-promotion. <laughs> well, I'll start with the self-promotion. I have another podcast, and I'd love you guys to listen to it. That's true, by the way. Uh, um, so I, I'll just tell you a little on my side hustle stuff and when I got started. So I just accidentally found a podcast. Side, or uh, what was it called? Smart Passive Income. I haven't listened to it in a while, clearly. So I found that and dove in head first and just decided I was going to start some websites and a lot of stuff didn't work out right away, but I just kept uh, churning on it and eventually it panned out. A couple years after that, I got laid off and then I took the side hustles full time, which is what I'm doing now. And the self-promotion piece, that was actually tough because I'm not naturally uh, inclined to promote myself at all. So I had to overcome, I guess, talking about myself and selling. It's all sales, whether it's you know marketing or directly selling via email or something like that. So just slowly over time, I, I kind of picked up and I, I'm not really sure where else to go. I mean, any follow-up questions uh, from you guys? How did you start your side hustle? Like what, what was the, how did you pick a side hustle to start? The show that I was listening to at the time, they were really big on like niche and affiliate sites. So that's the case studies that they were talking about. So I just did those because that's what example I saw. If it was drop shipping or real estate, maybe I would have done that instead. And I really didn't have a, pro I wasn't interested in side hustles or the income. It just looked like a fun little project. 
And if somebody were listening to this show or in the audience and they thought, you know, I'd like to make more income, I want to start a side hustle, what are, your, what are some good tips for them? I think it's really good to find um, someone who's doing it. So you could pick the medium that you want to follow. Some people like YouTube, some people like podcasts or blogs or whatever. So find the medium you like. Find someone who's doing it. Usually you can find case studies and very clear examples of what they're doing. Make sure you trust them. There's a lot of weirdos out there. And then you could just emulate what they're doing. A lot of people do have courses, and that's a good way to just shortcut the situation because there's a lot of noise out there. It's hard to know what to follow. Like in your course, Rachel, you probably could find all the material elsewhere, right? But it's like contact with you, and then you remove all the fat, right? Yeah, and I think with a course, I mean, anyone can find the knowledge online pretty much. There's podcasts, there's websites, there's books. But typically when somebody's offering a course, they're offering a lot more. They're they're helping hold you accountable and they're helping you implement what you learn. And that's the point of taking a course. And you're learning directly from somebody who has done it before and can sort of hold your hand through the process. So you're getting a much higher level, which will in my opinion, increase your chances of success. Yes. And do you have any tips for starting a side hustle? Um, Yes. I would say if you're trying to make more money, I look at it in three categories. There's active income. So that's where you're trading your time for your money. You can go get a part-time job. You can ask for a raise or a promotion. You can drive for Uber or Lyft, DoorDash. There's tons of ways you can make more active income. There's passive income. And I'm obsessed with passive income. So this is my forte. This is where you're not directly trading your time for your money. So you're earning money with little to no little to no ongoing effort. So if you invest in a rental property and you make rental income, or you do a print on demand, or you self-publish a book, or you earn money from an online course that's pre-recorded that you're not actively selling anymore, those are all passive income streams. With a passive income stream, you do have to put a lot of work in up front to create it and get it going, but then it becomes a lot more hands-off. And then the third category is a one-time moneymaker. So that could be something like donating plasma, selling unused gift cards. So when you're looking at these three categories, I think it's just how much time do you have? What are your goals? Do you need to make money quickly? Do you want to create long-term passive income streams? So just think about it in that context and narrow it down from there. Do you have anything to add? <laughs> okay. Uh, this one's directed at me. What would you recommend for a loan option when purchasing a house? I don't want to rent. Is it better to take out a loan to pay for it or just wait until I can afford it? I'm going to say take out a loan. I do not agree with Dave Ramsey on this be completely debt free, including your mortgage thing, because the average home price in America is what, three or $400,000? It's a lot of money. If you have three or $400,000 just sitting around, you are not using it to your advantage. You may not like to have a mortgage, but you can get in now when, I mean, housing prices have just continued to go up. So you get in now and then you can work on paying it off. I recommend the 30-year over the 15-year because you can pay a 30-year off in 15 years. You cannot pay a 15-year off in 30 years. So get yourself a 30-year. It has a lower payment and it's got a slightly higher interest rate. Definitely call you know call the lenders and get quotes on the, the interest rates. But I like the 30-year over the 15-year because you have more flexibility. 
Um, the difference in paying off a 30-year rate, a 30-year loan in 15 years is very nominal extra out of pocket than taking the 15 year. I mean, the 15 year is going to be like one and a half times your payment of the 30 year. So it's just more out of pocket. You have to, it's like a bigger nut to cover every month. Can I say that? Is that rude? It, it did sound rude. Yeah. It sounded dirtier than you thought. It did it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, it's, isn't that like a phrase? It's a, it's a bigger. Yeah. Is it, okay. Well, it is, just yeah. don't take the dirty way. Um, so yeah, I mean, you've got a bunch of different options as a borrower, as assuming you have good credit, you have the FHA loan, which is sometimes hard to get accepted because they can be really, really difficult with regards to um, the FHA inspections. But that's a great one for people who may not have really great credit. They go down to 580 credit score. Uh, you've got the VA loan if you are a veteran or if your spouse is a veteran. You have a loan that isn't that familiar. It's the uh, rural loan. It's the USDA loan. That's also a 0% down loan. The USDA loan map does not keep up with progress. So if you're buying in a new uh, a new build that is kind of out in the middle of nowhere, sometimes the USDA loan will cover that so you can get in at a lower price. Um, or a, a lower down payment. Um, you've got your traditional conventional loan, which is going to be very easy to get an offer accepted with a conventional loan. Um, those go down to as low as 3% down, again, assuming really excellent credit. And it depends on what part of the country you're investing in, how, how much the uh, property costs. But there's a lot of different options. But if you are like straight across the board, I mean, everything's different. Personal finance is personal. Um, but I say that all the time, <laughs> I'm rolling my eyes at me, but a 30 year conventional loan is going to be what I would recommend to anybody who's getting a loan, unless we have specific situations to talk about. Uh, Rachel. Yeah. So the question was get a loan or wait to buy a house in cash. Mm -hmm. I agree with everything you said, Mindy. I think the sooner you can buy real estate, the better. I think that more average men and women have become have become millionaires through real estate investing than through any anything else. Um, the great thing about getting a fixed rate mortgage on real estate is that you have two hedges against inflation when you do that. You have a fixed rate mortgage, which is a hedge against inflation, and then you have a piece of property, which is a hedge against inflation. And with inflation being 8.5% right now, I just think that's a really smart move. Does anybody have anything else? No, yeah, I was going to say it's great to do the show with you two because we don't have to talk that much. <laughs> and you guys sound really smart. And uh, just drink check. Everybody good on their drink? Yes. I, I need some. That's the only reason I <laughs> so need some. Yeah, it looks good. Thanks, JT. Do you want to share what brewery you're drinking from? Yeah, this is uh, New Belgium. It's 1985 IPA. And I think it's some mango variety and there's a sort of a, a cobra kai logo on looks there. legit yeah <laughs> this is good you didn't go with dubco really dubco's in the house and you didn't go with dubco it just happened to be there, there's others over there dubco is great <laughs> okay doug this one's you an asparagus walks into a bar <laughs> okay it's your turn finish the joke it's literally what it says 
I, I do have a punchline to it if you don't, Doug. I just thought of it right now. Oh, go, good. Go that would be great. Do you have, I don't want to hijack it, Doug. No. I, this is an interesting uh, content idea. We make up jokes on the fly, so they're definitely not going to be funny. It's a rough one. Yeah. No, go. What do, what do you got? In Asparagus Walks Into a Bar, his ex-girlfriend says, stop stalking me. That's pretty Asparagus. Oh, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. Okay, can Carl and Rachel fight about the pros and cons of syndication deals? Rap battle format optional. I don't know if we have a difference of opinion in this. I'd be curious to know uh, what they're going for. Yeah, what are, the pro- what are the pros? What are the what are the pros? I I think the one thing I want to say about syndication deals is all the ones I ever looked at, like. So first of all, I should explain what a syndication deal is. It's when uh, someone wants to buy like a big apartment building and they're going to pool a bunch of investor money together. And there might be different reasons. The one, the ones we have invested in are value adds where you buy like a C-class building. They're going to fix up all the apartments or going to raise rents and then sell it for a higher profit. So you get paid quarterly and then you get a big payout at the end. The issue I have with syndications is no one is going to show you the perspective saying, yeah, we, we don't think we're going to make our numbers. This is going to suck. They'll show these glorious numbers based on who knows what. So I have found the main thing I consider with syndications is all the subjective measures. What do I feel good about these people? Do I know what they're doing? What is their track record of success? Are they buying a property in the same geographic area that they've always bought in because they know that one or are they buying in some other part of the country we got stung with one like that so uh, it, Rachel I think you have a lot more experience I'm curious to know what you say and I don't want to battle you you would kick my ass so <laughs> no, I, I'm just going to back so. down I <laughs> know I agree with everything that you said when you look at a syndication and their webinar deck you know when they're presenting it to you you have to take everything that they're saying with a grain of salt because they can make the numbers say anything they want it to say. It's all just a projection. So really, you have to do almost as much due diligence on the syndicator as the syndication itself. You're trusting more so the syndicator to have the knowledge and experience and be on top of it during the entire timeline of the investment. So that's really, and you're going to be sending them 25, 50, 100 grand. So you need to make sure they know what they're doing. And then when you're analyzing the syndication and doing due diligence on their projections, it's not about looking at their projections. It's about looking at their assumptions and their underwriting. And do you agree that they've made conservative assumptions in what they are projecting? So for example, some of the things I look at are, and I won't get too much in the weeds here, but enter cap rate and exit cap rate. And um, another one that's more simple to understand is, did they project one-year rent increases that are too high, that don't make any sense? Because if they are renovating half of the units in the apartment complex, but the, but then in the year one rental projections, the rent is going up by $300 a unit across the board, that doesn't necessarily make sense because half the units need to be renovated and that takes time. Um, are, are they projecting that the property taxes are going to increase a lot when they buy the property because that typically happens if they're buying the property at a much higher price. So there's things like that that you can review and make sure that you agree with their assumptions. And then again, just understanding the experience of the syndicator themselves. So yeah, I agree with Carl. And how many syndications have you been a part of? I'm invested in eight syndications as LP, limited partner. 
And then do you have like a checklist that you go through now, like all the things you learned along the way? Yeah, I've compiled a list of questions that I ask the syndicator to, to screen them and interview them, and then a list of questions that I go through with the syndication itself. And a book I really, really recommend is The Hands-Off Investor, which is a Bigger Pockets book by Brian Burke. I will say it's very dry and technical, so it's a little, it can be hard to get through, but it's the best book I've ever read about how to analyze a syndication. If you can't get through the book, then you shouldn't be investing in syndications. <laughs> It's not, a, it's not a really exciting topic. Yeah. I mean, it can be. Look at all this money we're making. Um, uh, let's see. Now we just have you and me questions, so I guess you guys can just sit back. Uh, paying off student loans early versus investing. This question is directed at me. I'm actually not going to let you guys sit back. I'm going to let you chime in here as well. Paying off your student loans early, it depends on... A lot of different factors. What is your interest rate is the most important question. What is your level of comfort with the student loan itself um, or with debt in general? What are your other debts that you have? If you have a 2% interest rate student loan versus an 18% interest rate credit card, I'm going to say keep that student loan and pay off your credit card first. Uh, student loans versus mortgages? Depends. I don't think there are 2% student loans. And if there are, you're awesome. Keep it. Um, but uh, my podcast co-host, Scott Trench, has a rule of thumb. He says, if it's under 4% interest rate, I pay the minimum payment for as long as I can. If it's over 7 or 8%, I pay it off as quickly as I can. If it's in double digits, I do everything I possibly can to pay that off early. But between the 4 and 8% interest rates is kind of a gray area, and that's more of a personal choice. Are you going to feel heebie-jeebies by having all this debt, all this debt in your in your life, then pay it off. If you are comfortable with it, then keep it. Um, if you can find a way to make investments that cover the amount that you're paying in student loans, to me, it makes sense to, to uh, that cover and then some, then, you know, it makes sense to continue to invest rather than pay off your student loans early. Let's make pretend numbers again. You've got a 3% interest rate on your student loan, but you can conservatively get 7, 8, 9% in the stock market. It's a no-brainer to me to invest in the stock market because even after you take the 3% off, you're getting 4, 5, 6% in the stock market, which is more than zero. So you should do that. The other thing you didn't mention is a 401k match. If an employer is going to give you a 100% match on your first whatever contribution, that's an absolute no-brainer. Yeah, and I was considering uh, after-tax investing with this question. So, yes, absolutely. If your employer is giving you a 401k match, do everything you can to get the entire match first. Nice. I don't have anything to add. I agree with everything you said. I, I'll add a, another rule that I think is just simple, and it just looks at this question from a purely mathematical perspective, but it all depends on all the things that Mindy already mentioned. Um, but if you just want to look at the most efficient use of your money, then you put it towards the highest interest rate, so whatever the interest rate is. So, for example, if you have a credit card that's 20% and your student loans are 8%, and you kind of already said this many, then you put it towards the credit card loan. Or if you have a rental property that you could invest in that would earn you 13% and your student loans are 8%, 
then you put it towards the rental property. So no matter if it's helping you or hurting you, always put your money towards the highest interest rate. And again, that's oversimplifying it because de it depends on everything. But I just find that helpful to look at from a mathematical perspective. Yeah, just take your emotions out of the, the equation. Easy. And just do it it's, by math. Yeah, it's so easy. So easy. <laughs> uh, Rachel, what was the hardest thing about becoming a real estate agent? Um, I don't know. I, I, the exam wasn't too difficult. And has is anyone in the room already have the real estate license? Did you think the exam was – what did you think of the exam? Uh, the first time I took the exam, I got I went through all of my coursework, and then I took the exam. I got a twenty percent. You have to pass with an eighty percent. So I took their test prep, and I took the test again, and I got like a thirty-five or something. And I just kept taking the test over and over again until I memorized all of the questions, which sounds horrible. But the questions that you have to take to pass the test have nothing to do with buying and selling, helping people buy and sell real estate. It's just geared towards passing a test, which is so stupid. So I memorized all the questions and I passed with flying colors. Could I pass today? I work as a real estate agent. I could not pass that test. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's just about memorization. And I, I really think the hardest part was just finding the time to, to do the prep for the exam. And once you do that, it's, it's not too bad. Yeah. If you want to be a real estate agent, this is a question that they didn't ask, but I'm going to go off on a tangent. Because we're sitting up here and we can. Uh, should you get your real estate license? Rachel, today, her presentation said, yes, you should. And there are a lot of benefits to having your real estate license, such as I don't have to call somebody up to set up an appointment who then gets back to me and then I can go see the house. I can set up my own appointment and just walk right in. Um, that's great. I have access to the MLS so I can run all the comps that I want. It's really awesome. But I believe that if you are not actively working as a real estate agent, your time and money is better spent on other things and hiring somebody who is an expert in the field. So if you want to be a real estate agent to help people buy and sell real estate, A, you can make a ton of money. And B, you can, uh, if you're going to work as a real estate agent, that's when you should get your license. If you're not going to work as a real estate agent, I would say no. And this is actually something that has changed over time. I used to think that you should always have your real estate license. It's the best thing ever. But there's uh, continuing education every year. There's um, there's a cost to having your license. You have to have you have to hang it under somebody who's more experienced. You have to have some sort of relationship with them. There's just a lot involved. So I think personally, if you're going to have your license, you should want to work as an agent. I will say my license is inactive right now. So we stopped acquiring rentals in 2018. Those couple years where we were acquiring rental properties, I had my license active and we acquired multiple properties in those few years and we made a ton of money. When I stopped though, I put my license into escrow, meaning my license is now inactive. So I'm not required to do nearly as much or if any continuing education. I don't have to pay for it. So I think that's a smart way to, to maybe have the best of both worlds. And then if I ever get serious about building my portfolio up more or doing anything that I want to do with my real estate license, I can just reactivate it. Yeah, that is a good point. And also you were buying a lot of properties. If you're just going to buy one property, it is not worth having your real estate license. I think it cost me $3,000 to get my license, which is fine in Colorado where our median home price is like $450,000. It's very easy to make that up the very first time I sell a house. Um, I work at Bigger Pockets. He has a blog. I have a podcast. I have a ton of leads that come into 
my pipeline just from my job. If you're starting off without all of those benefits, then you're going to have a harder time finding people to work with you. And uh, I mean, everybody, how many real estate agents do you know? Think about it in your life. How many people do you know are real estate agents right now? Like which one of your 17 real estate agent friends would you use to help you buy or sell your house? Um, so well, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. Um, okay. The last question. Oh, I guess. No, I asked that one. The last question that we have is for me, but I think everybody could answer it. And especially Rachel, what do you think of corporate housing or midterm rentals? Would you recommend it to someone starting out in real estate? So we actually just bought another house and we're going to turn it into a midterm rental. I like the idea of midterm rentals, which is a furnished rental 30 day minimum. Um, it gets around almost all of the short-term rental bans that cities are starting to enact or have enacted already. If your city does not have short-term rental laws, you should not be buying a short-term rental because they're going to make short-term rental laws. If you're in a, a vacation spot, Orlando, Florida, they are never going to shut down the short-term rental market. There's just too many it's like too too much of a part of the, the space. Same with uh, Gatlinburg. Uh, what is that, Tennessee, Kentucky? Mm -hmm. um, they have a ton of short-term rentals where people expect to be able to rent that. So a touristy place is probably going to be a great place to have a short-term rental. Uh, but the longer-term rentals, the, the mid-term rentals are good everywhere. Uh, short-term, I'm, I'm sorry, um, one of the... One of the benefits to that is you don't have to go in and clean it every single week or after every single – well, you do have to clean it after your tenants, but they're not leaving every week or every few days. Um, would I recommend it to somebody starting out in real estate? Maybe. Do you have money to furnish the property? Do you have um, – like you really have to make it Instagrammable in order for people to want to stay there. Everybody wants to stay in a cute house. It doesn't matter if it's comfortable. They also want it cute. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it to somebody who is starting out with low money. I also wouldn't recommend real estate to somebody who is starting out with no money because you need money. Something's going to break. you got to be able to fix it. I did the midterm rental strategy a really different and unique way, and it was very lucrative for us. So my three bigger buildings that were 10 to 12 units each – they were, we, we called them boarding houses and it was a rent by the room model. So for example, one of them was a traditional fourplex. And instead of renting each unit out, we rented each room out. So instead of having four tenants, we had 12 tenants because each unit in this fourplex was a three bed, one bath uh, unit. So we had 12 tenants in their total. And what we did is we had a minimum 12 week lease in each of these rooms. And then it rolled into actually a week-to-week -week lease. So this was a midterm rental strategy. And it was in downtown Louisville. The rooms that we rented were rented for about $140 per week. So it was very, very affordable. So that's $560 per month. And we could have vacancies that, I mean, we, we could keep these rooms full People were calling us constantly. We had a wait list of people. We could not even return the phone calls for these rooms. And it was really great because we could have an enormous amount of cash flow on these buildings. 
and we were providing affordable housing for the community. And we could furnish it in a really low cost manner. It wasn't something that we were renting on Airbnb or Furnished Finder or have to have really high quality or pretty furniture in there. Um, it was just for people on low incomes that needed a place and needed a convenient, cheap place to live. So it solved a lot of problems and it really worked for us. So I think that's just a different way that you can do a midterm strategy um, for somebody starting out. So just to kind of throw that in there too. Oh, I like that. Okay. Thoughts on using energy or time on financial independence versus building an interesting career? Carl. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I'm going to say something that might be surprising given, given where we're at. But I think the need for fire in this whole movement is kind of diminished now. And I think the reason for that is, uh, I'll back up a second, I think fire was a reaction to how perhaps our parents used to work. They'd get the same job. They'd work there for, for four decades. They'd get the golden watch when they were 65. They'd go to Florida and die. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like fun at all. I think that sounds horrible. But now I think many of us have a much looser relationship with our job. It's more of a gig economy. We don't have the tight relationships that we used to have with our employer. I think your mom said something. She's like, oh, you can't have a gap in your resume. An employer will look like that's a big negative. But now I think that kind of thing is not only not a negative, but it might be a positive because, hey, I use that time to focus on my mental health or I use that time to spend with my kids. So I think FIRE was a reaction to that tight relationship. And I'm not sure it's as necessary. The other thing I see with people, and there's someone in the audience right now who I'm looking at, he started out as a nuclear engineer, and now he does real estate, two completely different things, which is pretty awesome. We're not expected to do the same thing our whole life, and it's okay to take a year off and go hike Southeast Asia. Is that what all you youngins do? I don't know. <laughs> I love green curry. I'd love to actually do that at some point in my life. But the question was, should you focus on fire or your job? And I think you should just – it's – Neither of those things. I think you should focus on your happiness. You should find, figure out what work really makes you happy and negotiate the relationship you want with the work and, and do that. And the focus shouldn't be fire. It should be building a life that you're really happy with and enjoying it the whole way along instead of focusing on some future thing to make you happy like fire. That's what I thought. Oh, I'm going to get rid of my job. And then it turns out the happiness is pretty much the same. And at that point, you figure out it's your internal things you have to work on. The external thing makes your life better that you've gotten rid of, but you're not necessarily happier. So you shouldn't wait even another hour to focus on happiness. You should do that now. If you're in a toxic toxic job situation, figure out a way out of that. And yeah, find a way to be happy in the present moment. I think that's a great answer. And I personally have two takes on this. Um, my sister is a travel postpartum nurse, and she loves what she does. She loves working with moms and babies. I once asked her, if you won the lottery, you know, $20 million, what would you do? And she was like, I wouldn't do anything differently. I would still be a postpartum nurse. And I just find that so incredible. Some people love their careers, and it's not about the money. And she could be financially independent, and she would still do what she's doing. So she loves her career. So I don't think that quitting the job is necessarily the goal. That's, that's not what the goal needs to be, but it is about having financial security. And I shared with you all um, in the live audience, some of the difficulties I've been going through. And what I've learned is that financial independence is important for 
a lot of reasons. Because if you are going through something difficult, if you lose a loved one or your parent gets cancer or something, your employer is not going to care if your work performance is suffering for three months. So to be able to have financial independence and support yourself and do what you need to do during that time and not have to worry about income or money or have that hanging over your head, I think that is so, so important. And I really hope that more people take that seriously because I think that's a benefit and something that we just don't talk about enough. Okay, we are out of questions. I do have a, a couple others Ooh. that we can run through. Did I think about asparagus? <laughs> no, these are these are actually good questions that I came up with all on my own. What did you say about my asparagus question? <laughs> <laughs> Where How was many it? people submitted asparagus questions? Like yeah, seven. I felt like there was more. I think Mindy may have filtered them out. <laughs> Thank you. Well, how many times can I ask the same question? Exactly. I, they're all okay. worthwhile. Are you throwing the asparagus people? Under the, we're trying to get an asparagus sponsorship here. Asparagus is not going to come sponsor your yeah, show there's a, with there, all of these. There is an asparagus festival in California. Did it's like anyone's a multi -day. smell weird after lunch? That was my question. That was Rachel's question. <laughs> and it was a great one. But wait, there's more. Did okay, you so specifically Mindy's counting the questions. Wait, I have a question for everybody. What's the most, like... I don't know, guilty pleasure thing you've ever done with your money that was just crazy and out there and very unlike you or very not frugal? Buying a 1991 Acura NSX. <laughs> <laughs> Same answer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I've, uh, I've been buying a lot of guitars lately. and they're. Okay. How many can you play at one time, Doug? Uh, just one so far, but I'm practicing very hard. Yeah. What, growing extra arms? <laughs> yeah, what about you? Well, now I feel embarrassed because <laughs> I, one time I flew to another state to get my hair done. <laughs> okay. Was it a good hairdresser? Yeah. But, but she did my hair and it was like the best thing I ever had done. And then I left. And so when I want to get my hair done again, I flew back, but I used travel rewards and stuff. So it wasn't that expensive and it was cheaper to fly to Ogden, Utah than to get my hair done in Denver. Okay. So it really wasn't that crazy. Okay, but I realize how defensive you. I sound. <laughs> um, but the thing was, the second time she did it, it sucked. So uh, then I had to like pay more money to get it redone. Yeah, so oh, that was a bummer. I've got a girl in Boulder. She's not cheap, but she's so good. Oh, I found one now in Denver, and now now I spend too much. But it's actually not too much because it's worth it. I mean, don't look at my hair as an example because I haven't had my hair cut in like nine months. <laughs> Yeah, this is not the hair group. <laughs> we don't know much about it. Okay, I actually do have a couple questions. Do you have any others, Rachel? No, no. Okay. Well, just a couple more here. So I'm curious from each of us, any influence from your family or parents um, through, like with your FI journey in general? My parents are very frugal. Like I think most people would pronounce their level of frugality as cheap. Um, and I, my mom is one of eight. My dad's one of seven. Their parents were children of the Depression, so they grew up having nothing. They had a bunch of kids, so they also had nothing. My parents have always acted like they have nothing. And that has – is frugality 
nature versus nurture, it's both for me. Like I naturally frugal because of my parents and naturally frugal because of my parents. So, which is very helpful. I mean, Rachel said in her talk today that frugality was how she got to financial independence. That was a big help. Um, I feel weird when I spend a lot of money, like frivolously. So, like at that hair care person in Boulder. That's not frivolous. At least you're not flying to Ogden, though. <laughs> no judgment. Yeah, well, the 24-year-old Rachel would never have done that. I'm sure it looked awesome. I think Doug did a similar thing, right? Yeah, it did not work out the same. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I hijacked you. I was done. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, growing up... Uh, I'm not trying to throw my parents under the bus, but they were never educated about money. So they just didn't really know how to manage or invest it. And I, I noticed that growing up. So the lesson there was I need to figure this stuff out as soon as I can and figure out what the correct answer was. And it took a long time. Um, fortunately, I got lucky with a bunch of stock picks before I knew what an index fund was. But the thing they did do that was really good is we had no handouts. If we, oh, by a terrible story, I remember for my fifth birthday, I got this wagon for like one of those radio flyer wagons and I left it outside and someone came and stole it that night. So I was crying. I'm like, oh, mom, can we go to the store and get another one? She's like, nope, you left it outside. You should not have done that. So th there goes your birthday present. And uh, that sticks in my head to this day. Like I remember like it was yesterday. But the other thing they did was. What? I've never heard this story and we've yeah. been married for 20 years. I remember it was gone. We took our bikes around there. We walked around the neighborhood. I don't think I could even bike then looking for it, but it was gone. Yeah. But Let's get you a wagon, man. We can we can get one. <laughs> it, it, every time I see one, our neighbors have one. That little one, I'm like, oh, I had one of those at one time 42, 44 years ago. But th the good thing they did was they made me work for anything. If, we, if I wanted a car or anything, we had to go out, get a job, and buy it ourselves. So they instilled um, that value, virtue of hard work, and I'm thankful for that. And my family was pretty frugal as well. And they were, I mean, pretty good savers. My parents were good savers, never earned a whole lot of money. But we never, and we never like got super fancy cars or anything like that. One thing I didn't realize until recently, my dad retired when he was like 48. He was a firefighter, so we got his 30 years in pretty quick and had some deferred compensation. So only later did I realize like, wow, that was pretty impressive. And he never got another job. He did, he like helped uh, with some CPR classes and some other things like that, but generally like he never wanted to work again. So, and he got to travel and do a bunch of cool stuff. So yeah, what about you? Yeah, my parents had a big uh, impact on me. So I grew up in a really wealthy bubble in Kentucky and all my friends, I remember feeling like they lived in mansions. The kids in my high school got brand new BMWs when they turned 16, some of them. And it was just an unrealistic place to grow up in. And we weren't living in poverty by any means, but I remember feeling like we were poor in comparison to them. My family was not operating that way. We were always on a strict budget, living paycheck to paycheck. We didn't go on family trips. We didn't even go out to eat at, at restaurants. So I remember feeling like I didn't fit in in middle school and in high school. And that's not the way you want to feel at that age. And I just also remember thinking that I didn't want to grow up and struggle with money the way that I saw, because money was always a stressor in our family. 
I didn't want to operate on a strict budget for the rest of my life or have to borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. And I remember thinking that what I did then could either set me up for wealth or for poverty. So it, it had a big impact on me. And it's the reason that I took financial independence so seriously. I started learning everything I could because I wanted to become financially independent for myself so that I didn't have to struggle that way and so that I could take care of my loved ones if they ever needed it as well. Awesome. All right. Carl, do you have anything else for us? I do not. Mindy, where can people find you? I am all over the internet at Mindy at BP, M-I-N-D-Y, A-T-B-P on Twitter, Facebook, IG, maybe on TikTok. I don't know. We'll link it all up. Yeah, that's good. Are you, are you not on TikTok yet? I, I have a TikTok account. Okay. What are, what are we laughing at? Am I not there on you don't say IG. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to say IG anymore. I think what you say we, uh, Insta. Is that it? Brad Philson. Graham. Graham. I don't. I don't think it matters that much. I mean, we're not. We're not going to post anything anyway. I don't think. I mean, does anybody right. not know what I'm saying when I say IG? Yeah, we'll find it. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Jake. We could debate it after the podcast. Maybe I'm not yeah, sure. No, let's fill up a lot of time here. <laughs> Rachel, thank you. Where can people find you? Uh, thank you. So if anyone listening wants to download my passive income starter kit, uh, you can find that for free at moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash starter. And you can follow me on Instagram or IG <laughs> or Insta <laughs> at moneyhoneyrachel. Awesome. Thanks very much. And uh, thanks, Carl. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five, and uh, actually, we don't give high fives in in person so the virtual kind's pretty good and more importantly your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them number two make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app apple Podcasts, spotify overcast youtube whatever you're using and that way you won't miss a show and number three please leave us a rating and review we read them on the show occasionally and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week.